Hello, I'm Jonathan Izard. Welcome to My Year of Bad Sex. The idea for the book came to me when I was writing some stand-up comedy about a disastrous weekend that was supposed to have been a hot date. I then realised there had been an awful lot of disastrous weekends and disastrous nights and disastrous afternoons since I first tried the grim, surprising, delightful and frustrating world of online dating a few months earlier. After the end of a 13-year monogamous relationship, followed by three years of celibacy, which included a personal tragedy and post-traumatic stress, there followed 12 crazy months of rediscovering my sexual mojo in a world that was vastly different from the last time I was dating in another millennium and which would soon become vastly different again as the first hints of a mystery virus in China began to emerge. Many of my encounters were disastrous, some were funny, some downright filthy, but many were tender and sweet. There were hugs, laughter, tears, and, yes, a lot of sex. Unexpectedly, there was also romance. Fifty Shades of Gay would tell only half the story. There were exactly 100 encounters over 12 months. There was self-discovery and healing too, as I addressed issues from my past, including the chronic emotional damage of a violent sexual incident 40 years ago. I was still writing this book when COVID-19 appeared and held the world in its silent grip. Suddenly I was in lockdown, with one of the men in question. Would that prove to be too much too soon, or a romantic coda to my year of gay abandon? Oh, I should make one thing clear before we go any further. Well, two things. This book does not span exactly one year, and it's not just about bad sex. Some of it was worse than just bad. It was awful. And some of it was rather good. I know, I know. How bloody annoying is that? Double pork is in the title alone. I'm sorry. Now, I say it's not all about sex, but there is a lot of that activity. Yes, quite a lot. And much of it is hot and steamy. Heaving bodies, filthy talk and references to body parts in language that people really use. There will be no engorged members or buttocks swelling like the Quantock Hills on a summer evening. No, no. Cocks will be cocks, bums will be bums, and boys will be boys. So I hope you're okay with that. It's not just a list of what I did to him and he did to me, but there will be a certain amount of that, though, so I trust you're not squeamish, prudish or homophobish, because the sex will all be gay... Did I mention that? 100%. I can guarantee there will be no heterosexual sex whatsoever. All will be clear, and all will be queer. As the NAF receptionist cheerily intones, bear with myself. I hope you enjoy my year of bad sex as much as I mostly did. So, if you're sitting comfortably, then I'll begin. My Year of Bad Sex, Part 1 Our story begins with heartbreak. I'd been in a long-term relationship with Oliver, 13 years man and boy. Yes, there was a considerable age difference, but we managed that. We met when our allotted seats were next to each other on a train from Paris to London. I, being British, didn't speak to him. He, being half French, waited half the journey and then started a conversation. I thought he was friendly and interesting, but... Too slim for me. Not really my type. Later I learned that he had been admiring my hairy legs, I was wearing shorts, and sneaking glimpses of my chest inside my open shirt. When we had to show our passports, we compared photographs. He rightly said I looked like a convict. 
I gave his a perfunctory glance, but sought out his date of birth. Oh, good grief! Not only too slim, but far too young. He was the same age as my nephew, who happened to be sitting across the aisle with his girlfriend. Johnny told me years later that he wondered if I might end up in a relationship with the young man I was chatting away to. It hadn't occurred to me at that point, but it soon did. Oliver got off at a station earlier than mine. We agreed how nice it had been to talk and said our goodbyes. By then, goodbye, all the best, take care. And he got off the train onto the platform. But he didn't move away. He stood there, looking into the carriage. I nodded and smiled. He stayed motionless. His expression had a look of something I couldn't place. It was awkward. I felt embarrassed. I wanted the train to move on to end this strange, wordless encounter. Finally it did. His solemn face disappeared from my sight, but stayed in my mind. It was as if he'd been asking me a question, or trying to tell me something. Could it be that he, this too young and too slim man who thought I looked like a convict, actually felt... It seemed unlikely. That just didn't happen to me. I was a man who fell too easily in love with straight guys. Being admired or fancied wasn't known territory for me. And yet... And yet... We'd said cheerio and au revoir and gone our separate ways. This was back in the year 2000, when we used Nokia phones to send SMS messages. The Big Brother house was a novelty, and Robinson's superior sneer got up all our noses, and the tinny jingle of Game Boys drove us crazy. So we hadn't WhatsApped or airdropped each other's details onto our smartphones. We'd had a conversation and plenty of laughs, smiled and waved and floated apart. But that conversation, if I could remember the details, might give me the clue to reconnect, which I knew I wanted to after watching that forlorn expression gazing at me. Oliver was going to visit his granny. Yes, he was that young. And she was from a big family that owned another place in the same village. If I could just dredge up those names, the farm, the village... I still have the notebook where I doodled and scribbled letters and sequences of letters like a stroke victim learning to write again. Am, trim, scrr, clur, crur, cra, crim, 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 crindledon. Yes, I had the village. Now that farm, more gibberish and floundering, produced it. Chan, chor, chi, chestnut. I had an image of it already, solid and impressive. Once I had the basic info safely written down, his name, the approximate address... I left it a couple of days to solidify, and for me to take stock. I didn't want to appear too keen. After all, I only had that wistful demeanour to go on as evidence of interest. But I wasn't going to let fear of rejection get in the way. If rejection did come, so be it. But not taking the step out of fear that it might, well, that would be pathetic. And I'd spent too many years failing pathetically to change my weight from the back foot to the front. So I did what you did then. I wrote a postcard, attached a stamp, did we still lick them then before the gummy ones appeared, and put it in the letterbox, addressed to him at Chestnut Farm, Crindledon. I kept my message fairly bland. It was great to meet you, Oliver, and I really enjoyed our conversation. If you do come up to London and fancy a drink, or something, let me know. And I gave him the number of my landline. Yes, I had a landline. The drink would be a no-no. I soon found out he didn't touch alcohol, or tea, or coffee, or carbonated drinks. The or something 
was a consciously ambiguous but apparently innocuous mine hidden in plain sight, an explosive primed with potential. He could miss it or seize on its deeper meaning. I really fancy snogging the gob off you, young man. Little did I know that in those few days Oliver was also working out his strategy for a reconnection. He had apparently liked what he'd seen, the legs and chest on this convict, but he also didn't know much about me, and staying with his granny didn't have access to any forms of research. However, the fact of my working at the BBC might be enough. With no iPhone, no computer, no internet, and no other option, he walked miles into the village to the local library – Google that, youngsters – to get online and search the corporation's website in the hope of finding the names and contact details of employees. As if. But it was his best shot, and it drew a blank. He trudged back to sit with his granny not at Chestnut Farm, but at the Dower House in the same village, chatting politely while speculating about what might have been possible with the old man on the train. Until the day he got a phone call from his auntie at Chestnut Farm to tell him that a postcard had arrived there addressed to him. He ran all the way, grabbing the card and feasting on its every syllable, kissing the words, re-reading them and clutching it to his chest. Or so I like to think. That's the version we'll see when the movie of our great romance is made. I suspect the reality was more downbeat. Oh, yeah, thanks, Auntie Liz. I'll read it later. But allow me to picture him excited. This was going to happen. And happen it did. He rang me. We spoke on the phone for several hours. It was a conversation bubbling with enthusiasm and curiosity, but there was something being hidden. Eventually, I asked him, This is great, but there are two things I really want to know. Are you gay? And how long are you in the UK for? Yes, and not long, were his answers. He had to return to finish his degree. Yes, that young but he changed his flight home to Canada by a couple of weeks. I went to visit and was charm personified to Granny, attempting to channel Michael Palin and Roger Moore while I lusted over her grandson. We left for a day out in the Kent countryside, and I was later told she rang Oliver's mother to say she was worried about this older man with a posh car. Hey, it wasn't that posh. We had our first kiss in the gardens at Sissinghurst Castle. Vita would have approved... Oliver told his granny he was going to London to stay with me. The fact that I worked at the BBC didn't reassure her, maybe the opposite. In those couple of weeks that he stayed with me, he speculated on the possibility of abandoning his studies, moving to London and us getting married. I cooled his ardour. One of us needed to be vaguely sensible, even while falling head over heels in love. He returned to Canada, and we spent a year in a transatlantic relationship. I would go to an empty BBC studio at Bush House, a four-minute, twenty-eight-second walk from my flat, do the little trick of jiggling the phone cradle to get the international dialing tone, and then we could chat for ages, planning a future together, laughing and sighing like young lovers, although only one of us was. Oliver could never understand why, after I had a birthday that summer and became twice as old as him, my age wouldn't always remain his times two. Figures weren't his strongest suit although, to give him his due, he would later be described as the best maths teacher in the world, by a six-year-old in his class. I visited him in Canada. His mother, who was French, was charming and hospitable. His father, who was English, was embarrassed and confused by my presence in his son's life. We found a way to be together. A year later he came to London to study for a master's degree. 
He lived with me in my tiny flat in Covent Garden, complaining frequently about the size of it, the impracticalities of the city, and making unflattering comparisons with the space and cleanliness and efficiency of what he was used to. We were opposites in so many ways. Older and younger, keen and cautious, impulsive and wary, accelerator and brake, always challenging each other's attitudes, we never lapsed into complacency. It wasn't cosy being in that relationship. It was tough and frustrating. But it was delightful, rewarding, surprising, joyful, ecstatic, silly and beautiful. I was so proud that Oliver was my boyfriend. I loved saying we. He and I were together for 13 years. They were the best of times. They were the second best of times. After a tough patch, my plan, if things continued to settle and strengthen as I felt they were doing, was to ask him to marry me. I was giving it until the end of the year, to be sure in my own mind. Oliver, it transpired, was thinking differently. One day in December, as I was approaching question-popping time, he sat on the sofa looking up at me with those absurdly large sad eyes, and whispered apologetically, I think I have to move out. Inside I was screaming, No, please don't go. I love you with every fibre of my body in a way I have never loved anyone else and never will. Let's do whatever we need to keep us on track. I can't bear the thought of losing you. Please don't leave me. What I meant was, If you think that, then I won't try to stop you. And what I said was, Yes, I think you do. We ticked over in chin-up fashion for a few weeks until he found a place to go, a room in a shared flat in Waterloo. We divided the CDs. Yes, cliché though it is, that process is one of the most heart-rending tasks. Spotify must have prevented much anguish. We did books and clothes and kitchen implements, both super generous to avoid seeming selfish. Have it! It's yours! No, no, please, take it! I don't need it! The night before he left, we went through the contents of the medicine box in the bathroom cupboard, spilling the boxes and jars and packets onto the carpet, throwing away those that were older than our relationship and dividing the rest. Were we past our best before date? Who was more likely to need medication for headaches, dyspepsia, eczema, ulcers, malaria, athlete's foot or hemorrhoids? In most cases, he was. I'd been brought up on fresh air and deep breaths as the treatment for almost every ailment, there was a dab of butter for a bruise and a rub with a cut onion for a sting. The hard stuff was Savlon, but we practically had to have a limb hanging off for a squeeze from that sacred blue tube. A thermometer was there too, but that was only ever used as proof that we were certainly well enough to go to school. Only as I got older and we moved to a house with the luxury of central heating did I learn the dark art of holding the glass tube against the radiator next to my bed for just the right number of seconds to create evidence of a fever. On the day of Oliver's departure, we lay in bed late, very late. We laughed, we cuddled, we talked and kept talking, clinging to the known, resisting the unknown. I had that song in my head. Neither one of us wants to be the first to say goodbye. It was beginning to get dark when a voice, I'm not sure whose, said, Well, I suppose... It was December the 23rd, 2013 two days before I had been going to propose. I helped Oliver to move, packing his belongings into my car and driving him to his new home. 
only a mile, but it was another world. For him, a life of autonomy and independence. And for me, I had no idea. We took his bags and boxes inside. I saw the sitting room, the kitchen, and the fridge with the shelf reserved for him. His bedroom, where from now on he'd be sleeping and maybe even... I couldn't think of that. Is this what it's like when a child goes to university? No. Despite the change of circumstances, they are still your child. I could no longer say we. I couldn't call him my boyfriend. But nor was X appropriate. Not yet, please. Just Oliver, then. He made me a coffee for my troubles. The help in moving, not the last thirteen years. I was extra polite, pretending all was well, and this wasn't hurting at all. How are you feeling? he asked. Fine, I said. The sort of fine that's on the point of screaming and throwing a plate at the wall. Don't leave me, please. We hugged like strangers, vaguely exchanged some vague words. We smiled, and I touched his face. Was it for the last time? I walked out into the empty street, got in my empty car, and drove away, empty, yet overflowing with despair. Perhaps it was unwise, but I looked up. The saddest thing I have ever witnessed in my life, and which is still stored in my personal mental visual database, undeletable, is the image of his face in the corner of the window, a small, dark shape, bottom right of the rectangular frame. I waved. I don't think he waved back. If he did, I didn't see. It's not easy to focus when tears are pricking your eyelids and you're blinking them away so you can drive. This was the heartbreak I mentioned. It's now almost exactly seven years ago. Life has dealt new challenges, new tragedy, new delights and new mysteries. But hearts don't entirely mend. Yes, they are resilient and find a way to keep beating. But they bear the scars, the memories, all of the pain. A richer life might emerge after the grief. But it's impossible ever to be carefree again. And where's the sex, you ask? Nothing so far. Don't fret, we'll get there soon. But first, that period of celibacy. If you imagine that was not the best Christmas ever, you'd be spot on. A friend of mine referred to Oliver the Bastard. But no, that's not the way I saw him, not at all. I knew why he'd felt the need to go. I hated it, of course, but I could understand his argument. He'd been 23 when we met, and I'd been his first adult relationship. He needed to find out what else... Who else was out there? To take care of himself in the world, negotiate being a grown-up alone, do all those adult things. I've never bought white goods, as he put it. I want to buy white goods. I'd had my hand on the metaphorical saddle until he found his balance. Now I had no choice but to watch him cycle away with a wobble and a wave. He went. I was in shock. I packed some clothes and books and drove to the cottage in Norfolk that Oliver and I owned. It had been my mother's years before. On Christmas Eve, I had a bizarre conversation with Rachel in the greengrocer's. Rachel. Are you looking forward to Christmas? Me. No. How much are the spring onions? Rachel. Oh, that's a shame. 40p, they should be marked. Me. I'll have two bunches then, please. Rachel. Are you doing anything special? Me. And a couple of those grapefruit. No. 
Rachel? Aww. Me, realising I'm making her feel awkward. And you? Rachel? Oh yes, I'm going to be with my family. My mum's coming over and we'll do presents before breakfast and play games with the kids and I'll have a huge turkey with all the trimmings. I've bought a luxury pud as well and crackers and everything. Oh, I love it. We all do. Me. That's nice. Rachel. And what will you do? Me. I have a large pile of ironing to get through. I might do some gardening if it's not raining and even if it is, I'll have a long walk on the beach. Rachel, shocked, pausing as she rings up my shopping. By yourself? All day? Me, yes. Rachel, cautiously concerned that she might feel obliged to invite me, unaware that I would never accept. Oh, it sounds a bit sad. Me, I am sad. My boyfriend left me yesterday after thirteen years. So I will have a sad day. I'll have lots of them. How much is that? Rachel. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm sorry to... Oh, well, um, altogether, uh, um, £4.65, please. OK, I may have made that bit up. I pay. She gives me my change. We're back on safe ground now. Me, wanting to ease her discomfort. I'll have the kind of Christmas I want, and you'll have the kind you want. I hope it's a really lovely day with your family. Bye. Rachel, her discomfort not eased at all. Bye. Poor Rachel. She only expected the usual bubbly banter about jingly jollity and tinsely topicality, the sort she'd been doling out and dealing in all day. But I liked her too much to engage in fake trivialities. A few days later, during that dull, anticlimactic lacuna between the 25th and the 31st, I saw her crossing the road. Our paths were about to collide, so it was too late for her to avoid or ignore me. She could have whipped her phone out of her pocket and pretended to take a call. Hi, yes, Mum, oh, I'm just in the high street. She was either too slow or too kind. Did you have a nice Christmas with your family? I asked her. Yes, I did. It was great. Good. I gave her a genuine smile. I'm glad you did. And you? she asked warily. My smile broadened, recognising something I couldn't quite name. Yes, thank you. I did. It was just right. Oh, good. We continued on our ways, both, I think, satisfied. That may have been the final time I used the term my boyfriend. About Oliver, I mean but actually about any man. I didn't expect it to fall from my lips at any point in the future. And the sex? Yes, at last we get to that. Well, I didn't have any for the rest of that year, 2013, those few days, nor any the following year, 2014, nor any the following year, 2015, and only in the 11th month of the year after that, November the 14th, 2016, did it re-enter my life. I was numb, a neutered, asexual creature. If you'd undressed me, unlikely, you'd have found no genitals, only a smoothed curve of nothingness between my thighs, like a child's toy, inaction man. I noticed men, of course. A handsome face here, a hunky body there, on the tube, at the gym, in the street. But like a dog that has no concept of upstairs because it's not allowed to go there, 
I would look and absorb the message. Not for me. I didn't miss it, even though in the past I'd been a rampant little bugger. Now I was anaesthetised, just as I'd gradually lost my sense of smell over my adult years until I was totally anosmic, so my libido deserted me. In the seventies there was a farce called No Sex, Please, We're British. I could have done it as a one-man show. I was in an inert limbo for thirty-five months, a chilly Siberian wasteland, but my thermometer was recalibrated, so I didn't feel the cold. But it was to get worse. Oh yes. Much, much worse. My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. It's a Protocol production, produced by Andy Mills with Marco Orionto. The music is written by Andy Mills. Mm -hmm.